Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Plant Powered People podcast with your hosts, Michelle Kane and Tony Okamoto. First off, you only said one hello. <laughs> I really wanted to mix things up. So. <laughs> I like it. You have to, everyone listening, you have to let us know. Usually Michelle says, hello, hello, everyone. And it threw me <laughs> off for a second. Okay. I like it. I, every time I try and mix it up, I then end up stumbling. Like it, it's like if you are an athlete and you have a certain routine that you do before every single game. Like I used to do that in volleyball. I'd always have the same way that I stepped and then I would like drop the ball two times before I'd go and serve. And I feel like the same with the podcast. I just need to start the same way and then we're off and rolling. But any changes and it just throws everything off kilter. But hopefully we'll be okay this time. Speaking of athletes, that's such a good segue, Michelle. I really got <laughs> a roll. Uh, speaking <laughs> of athletes, we are so excited to bring on our friend Robert Cheek, who is a New York Times bestseller and is just a fantastic athlete. Michelle is going to read you his bio. Okay. Robert Cheek has been on the athlete radar in the vegan space for some time. He's been vegan for 25 years. If there's anyone listening who's been vegan for longer than that, we would love to hear from you because that's amazing. And he became very notable as a vegan bodybuilder. He's written four books. And as Tony mentioned, his latest is a New York Times bestseller, which he will mention lots throughout the show because it's really exciting. I feel like after 25 years of just living and showing that you can build muscle, you can definitely put on healthy athletic weight on a plant-based diet, he has earned that title. So we're excited to bring on Robert Sheik. But before we jump in, Tony, I thought it'd be fun to chat a little bit about our athletic backgrounds. Obviously, we're by no means professional <laughs> athletes, but we both sort of identified as athletes when we were younger. Tony, what did you do in the athletic space? <laughs> it's funny because I still feel slightly athletic because I'm back into dancing. And that is like running a marathon in high heels for three hours. Well, I guess that's a really fast marathon. Do they have competitive... Well, they have competitive dancing competitions and stuff. Is it like going to become the next Olympic sport? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. It's it, I don't do aerials, but if you watch swing dancers train, they are being trained to get thrown in the air and it requires some pretty serious dedication and core strength and cross-training to have that athleticism because otherwise you can cause some very serious injuries if you're being tossed up in the air, doing a flip while you're in the air and then being caught by your partner. It's really, it can be dangerous and there have been some pretty serious injuries, but that is not the kind of level I am. But I do like to dance fast and it, it does make me sore and tired and I know when I'm out of shape, but I think <laughs> you're talking about when I was running and I got into plant-based eating as most people listening probably already know through running. I started just simply taking out red meat from my diet from a suggestion from my coach, but it ultimately led me here today to having this podcast with Michelle. So I'm very grateful for that. And then in my 
mid 20s, I ran a marathon and that was brutal. I'll never, ever do such a thing again. It's really hard as Michelle knows. She is, she has also done long distance running and it is no joke. Yeah. Tonya and I actually both helped organize team training programs to run half marathons for different vegan and animal nonprofit organizations, which was really fun. That was my life for five years. A big focus of it was bringing together people who wanted to raise money to help animals and then do that by training to run. And it was so cool because most of the people who signed up were not runners at all. So we had an awesome coach, Darren, who's actually the co-founder of... Or the the son of the founder of V-Dog Food. And we had training plans and I would send out weekly emails and I learned so much about running. And actually in this episode, you'll hear a little bit about Mount, Matt Frazier, who is the co-author of the book that Robert Cheek wrote. And I remember at the time, because this was like a decade ago almost, his resources on Nomi Athlete were some of the some of the ones that we turned to because he was also a runner. So I thought that was cool. And he would just, he would sell these shirts, like these almost athletic shirts that said Nomi Athlete on them. And at some of the races, often I would say at races that we'd go to, we would pass someone wearing one of his shirts. And it was such a cool sense of camaraderie to be able to like high five someone mid-race that you don't even know that you're just like, yeah, you're rocking it meat free. (laughs) It was like before vegan athletes was a big mainstream thing, which now it is. It's so cool. That is really cool. And it's so important. We talked a little bit, but I want to do expand on it because we didn't go in depth about the importance of finding your people when you're training as a vegan athlete and, and whatever. You did running groups. And I think that that is so cool because not only were you having that quality time chatting and training together, but then you would also have dinners together afterward. I think that's how you met Erica Gray, right? Yeah. Actually, a big part of my active close friend group came from the team training programs that I that I was a part of. It brought together such a cool collection of people who were just willing to literally go the extra mile to do good in the world. It was pretty fun. But also, they were, they were virtual. So there was an in-person group, but our programs were actually international. So anyone from anywhere could join this nonprofit group and sign up to run and they could train wherever they are and they could get um, like remote emails and feel that sense of camaraderie or even build a group of, of friends or local running group community where they could sort of build that where they were. And that was really fun to help organize too, because it was a lot of people who felt very alone and having community and other like-minded people around you when you especially are training really hard and just like pushing your body to the limits is so helpful and just empowering. I feel like I could talk about sports all day. (laughs) I I truly miss soccer. That was my one true love back in the day. But we're going to move on to talking about professional vegan athletes and all sorts of tips for anyone looking to be an athlete eating a plant-based diet. Robert comes and shares it all. So let's dive in. But before we jump into the show, we want to give a big thank you to our sponsors of this episode, Better Than Bouillon and Vital Body Therapeutics. Better Than Bouillon is a not-so-secret 
cooking secret. It's not secret anymore because we sing their praises every episode. We love Better Than Bouillon. It's a concentrated soup broth base and they have all sorts of incredible flavors to look out for. Seasoned vegetable is my go-to. Tony loves the no chicken flavor, but they also have a no beef, like a vegetarian, totally vegan, no beef broth. So if you're going to make some pho, noodle soup or whatever, that one's perfect. They have a mushroom flavor. Neither Tony and I are big on mushrooms, but the flavor is sometimes needed to get that like delicious umami in soups and stews. So they do have a mushroom broth. And then one of my favorite recent ones that I discovered is their roasted garlic and sauteed onion. Those are two different ones. There's a roasted garlic and then there's a sauteed onion and they are both delicious. If you're a garlic lover, you've got to try the roasted garlic. And then of course, they also have like a they have a seasoned vegetable and then an organic seasoned vegetable if you like being fancy and organic, which I always appreciate. So love, love, love me some better than bouillon. You can find it at your local grocery store. They they carry it so many different places in the soup aisle. And if for some reason they don't carry it at your nearest store, then you can go to their website, betterthanbouillon.com. Michelle and I are also going to include some of our favorites in the show notes. We love soup big time. So check out our show notes so that you can use your new Better Than Bouillon container in those recipes. Yes, definitely. They use premium ingredients and it adds a rich flavor to dishes, all sorts of dishes um, with real vegetables and aromatic seasonings. So we love you better than Bouillon. And we are so smitten that they're sponsoring the Plant Powered People podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next up, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Vital Body Therapeutics. I am a big, big fan of Vital Body Therapeutics. I use it pretty regularly. I hold a lot of my tension in my body and my shoulders and my neck and my lower back. And I also like to give massages to my partner. And so he has some lower back issues. I like to give him a nice massage with the CBD oil and their cream. They have an extra strength cream and a regular strength cream. And depending on how we're both feeling that's the one I'll use. And it makes you feel so relaxed if you were carrying tension or if you were feeling any aches or pain, it helps you feel a lot better. So I recommend checking them out at vitalbodytherapeutics.com and they just make you feel good. Yeah. CBD is one of those like all the rage ingredients that's supposed to be helpful to cure and make feel better almost everything. But it can be kind of tricky to figure out which companies are using really high quality ingredients. Um, Vital Body Therapeutics, every single batch is third party tested for, for safety and the cannabinoid content. So I know Tony did a ton of research when she was trying to figure out which CBD creams that she wanted to turn to personally. And this is the one that she landed on. So that's pretty cool. They have beautiful packaging and their quality of ingredients. It's all natural. There's no synthetic fragrances at all. It's made with organic herbs and hemp. And yeah, you can check them out, as Tony mentioned, at vitalbodytherapeutics.com. Hi, Robert. Welcome to the Plant Powered People podcast. Thank you so much. It is an honor to be here. First of all, major, major congratulations are due to you for the success of your book, The Plant-Based Athlete. We are so, so, so excited for you. I'm sure you've been over the moon since it's come out. Yeah. I mean, who would have thought that this farm kid from a small town would write a New York Times bestselling book, a number one international bestseller, a Publishers Weekly bestseller, number one Amazon bestseller in four categories. 
And we just lined up international deals in Germany, Taiwan, Italy, and they keep coming in. So it's been really one of the craziest times of my life. And it's been a lifetime in the making. So, so yeah, I am, I am very, very excited. That is awesome. Robert, I've known you for, I feel like, like a decade now, but I also know your story goes back far. And I'm wondering if in brief, you can share a little bit about the story and journey of getting there, both becoming an athlete yourself and thriving in it, and then ultimately becoming a bestselling author and just sort of the transformation of how the times have changed to be the perfect entryway for the world to really with open arms, jump into this idea of the plant-based athlete. Yeah, I think that's a key word is transformation. It's been an incredible transformation for me. Like I said, I grew up on a farm. My parents came from farming backgrounds. They met in the animal science department at Oregon State University. My father is a world-renowned expert and author of 15 textbooks teaching students and, and others how to raise animals for food. And that's the environment that I come from. Uh, and very much a farming background. I was in the 4-H program. I showed animals at the county fair. I sold animals at the auction. I said goodbye to my friends. You're going to be someone else's meal. See you later. And that's the background that I come from. And, you know, all the while, I was a small kid too. I mean, I, I was as far from a bodybuilder as you could get. In eighth grade, I weighed 89 and a quarter pounds. By the time I made it to high school, I was just over 100 pounds. And as a sophomore in high school, inspired by my older sister, Tanya, I decided to become vegan and give it a try. And I weighed 120 pounds. You know, the rest of the story, I would go on to become 220 pounds, showing unequivocally that you can build muscle uh, without animal protein and doing so effectively on a plant-based diet. But that, that, that transformation started, actually, as my younger sister became vegetarian maybe by age 10 or so, and this is back in the, this would have been back in the 1980s, <laughs> uh, or sorry, back in the 1990s. No, it would have been the 80s for her, 80s for her. And then by the time she introduced me to the vegan lifestyle, it was 1995, December 8th, 1995. And she was a senior in high school. I was a sophomore in high school. And she put on this event that had speakers talking about veganism and animal rights videos of factory farming and animal testing, literature that was distributed. Uh, this was mostly black and white materials back then. Uh, this is uh, slightly before the internet, before people had the internet at home. And there were conversations about animal rights that were taking place that were conversations I'd never had before. And so on that day, December 8th, 95, I decided that I would become vegan for a week to support my older sister. But as I attended events of this Animal Rights Week, day after day after day, I decided I wanted to stick with it. And I questioned whether I could do it as a five-sport athlete. I was a pretty good athlete growing up, involved in all kinds of sports, primarily endurance sports, running, soccer, basketball, track and field, cross country. That was my thing. But I always wanted to get bigger and stronger. I, I was a kid of the 1980s. I grew up with He-Man and Captain Planet and Hulk Hogan and pro wrestling. And that was what inspired me. And like many of us, we, we always want something or crave something that we don't have. And I was a small kid. I always wanted to get bigger and stronger. And I saw on television that milk does the body good and beef is what's for dinner. And this is how you become masculine and strong. And 
And I questioned all of that, but my sister gave me some confidence. And even back then, you know, as teenagers, she said, Robert, you know, it's, it's not that we need meat, milk, and eggs. We need the nutrition that's commonly associated with those foods, but those aren't even the best sources of protein and calcium and vitamins and minerals and antioxidants and things like that. In fact, they're relatively poor sources in a lot of ways. So I, I stuck with it. Two years later, I was organizing the Animal Rights Week at our high school, involved in all kinds of other things, protesting the circus, the clear cutting of old growth forests, starting recycling programs, composting, and really becoming an activist as a teenager, yet all the while still chasing these athletic dreams. Then I, I stumbled into lifting weights, got into bodybuilding, became a champion bodybuilder, a champion bodybuilder again, filmed a documentary about it back in 2005, wrote a book about it in 2010, uh, went on to gain 100 pounds on a plant-based diet, wrote four other books on it, and recently collaborated with Matt Frazier from No Meat Athlete and wrote The Plant-Based Athlete, which, as I mentioned, ended up on the New York Times bestseller list and has inspired tens of thousands of people in a short amount of time. So that's that's the snapshot of the past quarter century of following my passion for animal rights, veganism, and fitness. And they were all supportive of one another in this quest to get where we are today. So, uh, so it's been an honor to be part of this journey. And also, Michelle, to, to know you for a decade and, and Tony, to have your support of, of, our, of our new book with an endorsement and all that. It's, it's, it's been a real honor. Oh, man, that is a lot that you fit into your life, which is just who you are. But what's really, really cool to me is that you stepped into vegan living as an athlete already, a passionate athlete, to see how it would go for you. And while your sister gave you encouragement, there really wasn't a lot out there at the time, right? Like today, you could probably, and I would actually love you to name like the top, most high profile plant based athletes that are killing it at their sport. And there's just so much evidence of how eating plant based can just really propel you in your athletic career. But tell us how you were feeling when you were an athlete. And then what did you see as a result during those initial years? Yeah, those are, those are great questions. And it's, it's hard to fit everything in. I mean, it's so, it, because it is, it has been decades. So it's hard to fit it all into a, relatively brief conversation, but there's so many other aspects I didn't mention. I didn't talk about yet about how when I became vegan in the mid nineties, this was something that was very concerning for my parents. I mean, they thought I wasn't going to get enough nutrition, that I would be malnourished, incredibly unhealthy. There was no way I was going to reach my protein requirements or my nutrition requirements. And they were concerned for my health as were my teammates, as were my coaches but I just, I pursued it anyway. And as I was involved and, and very much involved giving presentations about animal rights in high school and promoting this idea of vegan fitness back then in the mid 1990s to my teammates, I was able to get the physical education department at my high school to order only rubber and synthetic leather materials rather than using leather and animal hides uh, for sports, uh, different sports equipment. And I was able to actually encourage a number of other teammates to adopt a plant-based athlete lifestyle too, which was really rewarding back then to have some teammates who were, who were doing it. So there were these initial concerns that many people had decades ago, that this was a diet or lifestyle that was uh, risky, that it was unhealthy, problematic, incomplete, you name it, all these different synonyms for worrisome. And you fast forward to today, 25 years later, 
how often do we hear people say all the time, I know I should go plant-based for my health. I know I should go vegan for my health. I know I should do this for the environment or for animals or to you know help me achieve a certain goal, whether that's preventing perhaps a diet-related disease or reducing body fat or losing weight or having more energy or getting off certain medications that are, again, as a result of diet-related decisions. We hear that all the time. People say all the time, I know I should go vegan for my health. And that wasn't the case decades ago. It's, it's been a complete transformation to bring that, that word back into it. And to answer your question, there are, I mean, answer the, about the athletes directly, there are so many of the world's greatest athletes who are plant-based. I mean, Novak Djokovic comes to mind right away. He's the top male tennis player in the entire world. He was voted a tennis player of the decade. And that's, again, up against Roger Federer and Nadal, two of the greatest of all time, yet Novak is still ranked ahead of them, beating Roger Federer in that epic Wimbledon match a year or two ago. And he won Wimbledon again a couple of weeks ago and uh, uh, playing in the Olympics right now. And, you know, just the, the greatest men's tennis player in the world. And then on the women's side, you have Serena and Venus Williams, the sisters who have dominated the sport of tennis for a decade or decade and a half or, or longer and have tremendous plant-based stories. And, and there are other tennis players. In fact, Sharon Feichman, we wrote about, I actually interviewed her while she was at the U.S. Open. She took the time to, to do an interview for our book and she just complete, competed in Tokyo a few days ago, representing Team Canada in women's tennis. And there are others, and that's just the sport of tennis. And you go into soccer, perhaps the greatest women's soccer player in the world, Alex Morgan, uh, who has been plant-based for years and won the Women's World Cup for Team USA and is in the Olympic Games right now. And on the men's side, there are tons of plant-based plant-based soccer players, including Messi, who's mostly plant-based, who's arguably the greatest men's soccer player in the world. So we're, we're, we're not talking about, you know, bench warmers in fringe sports. I can go on and on, Michelle and Tony. I mean, Chris Paul, who just played in the NBA finals, I had the opportunity to meet him, talk with him in person. We wrote about him in the book. Uh, he, he played in the NBA finals on the biggest stage in professional basketball. JaVale McGee, another guy I met in person, talked to, I've got a photo with, really nice guy. He's representing Team USA on the Olympic basketball team right now. They just played last night against Iran and, and he had a great game. And he's a plant-based guy. And, and, this, and this continues through the NBA with Kyrie Irving and, and so many others. And we're just getting started. And so many other iconic athletes. I met Mike Tyson in person, talked with him about his vegan lifestyle. He's not following it 100% right now, but he did for years and it helped him drop like 160 pounds and completely reclaim his health. Tom Brady, who won, I think, seven Super Bowls at this point, is mostly plant-based and is very open about that. We, we kind of call him a plant-centered or plant-forward. We talk about him in the book as someone who absolutely recognizes the benefits of including more plants in his diet, even if he personally hasn't gone 100%, like so many other people have. He's at least seen the longevity benefits, the reduction in inflammation, the improved athletic performance. And that's what we're hoping that so many people can relate to. The men and women who are absolutely 100% plant-based, vegan, and thriving as some of the greatest athletes in the world, including many of the household names we wrote about in our book, Rich Roll, Scott Jurek, Fiona Oaks, Christine Vardaros, Megan Duhamel, all down the line, and recognize 
that Messi and Brady and a few others who are some of the greatest athletes the world has ever known are seeing the benefits of a mostly plant-based diet. And that's connecting with the mainstream population, which is exactly what we wanted to do with the plant-based athletes was, um, was reach outside the vegan world, outside the plant-based movement and say, you know what? This is for everybody. You know, the Game Changers did a great job and we have James Wilkes and, and Dotsie Bausch and Rip Esselstyn and Scott Jurek from that film in our book. They did a tremendous job as one of the most watched documentaries in history. And here we are supporting that in literature form in a 350-page book that is designed to take the conversation even further, dive deeper, provide even more detailed information, and continue to take this movement forward. And that's, I think, exactly what we're doing. Speaking of your book, we were looking at how it's structured and it is structured so well. And you start with understanding the power behind food. And we'd love to dive deeper into what that is and how food impacts athletes and how it's beneficial to training and recovery time. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. And I appreciate you recognizing that because we worked really hard on this book, two and a half years to make it a how-to book so anybody can be a plant-based athlete. Like this is the go-to book on how to be a plant-based athlete. And we, we wanted to start right there with nutrition. You've got to understand what the obstacles are in athletic recovery. And that's typically that's inflammation. That's that soreness that prevents us from continuing to work out and something that needs more time to repair damaged muscle tissue or inflamed tissue. And as it turns out, it's largely animal protein and processed foods that are pro-inflammatory that lead to chronic inflammation or acute inflammation, which again is muscle soreness, is joint soreness, is pain, stiffness, the things that anyone who's even remotely athletic or active can recognize. I mean, if you go, if you go on a nice long, long hike, your first one in a long time, in weeks or months, I mean, you're going to feel muscle soreness and stiffness, right? You're going to feel it in your calves, your hamstrings, your quads, your glutes, maybe even elsewhere even maybe your abs or your shoulders from pumping your arms or whatever the case is. But imagine you do that every single day as an athlete where you're in the gym every day, you're on the soccer field or basketball court or tennis court or you're on your surfboard or whatever, every single day, this inflammation adds up and it's problematic and it makes you have to take more rest days and therefore slow down your, your improvement process, slow down your progression and adaptation in whatever sports endeavor you're you're on. So we have to recognize that. We have to recognize that certain foods are, are pro-inflammatory and other foods are anti-inflammatory. They have these great anti-inflammatory compounds and those are largely plant-based whole foods. And those are things like ginger and turmeric and leafy greens and antioxidant rich dark pigment fruits and uh, in general whole plant foods. The more the better. And so you've got to recognize that. And that's why people like, like Tom Brady and Mike Tyson and others saw these immediate benefits uh, when they were, were already the best in the world. And then they incorporated these, these high plant-based diets or, or fully plant-based diets and recognize that. Chris Paul said that explicitly in an interview. He's, again, 16 years in the NBA, but has spent his entire life playing basketball. And he said, basically, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but he basically said, I didn't realize that I could wake up and not feel that stiffness and pain just walking to the bathroom. 
went away when he adopted a plant-based diet. And it was, it was so beneficial, he almost wanted to keep it a secret because it was like his secret weapon in the NBA. And sure enough, guess what? Two years later, he's playing in the NBA f- finals and got some MVP votes after a period of time where he wasn't even an all-star and people thought his career was over. So recognizing that is very, very important. But also, as you no doubt saw at the beginning of the book, we make it a point that you have to understand nutrient density and calorie density. That is fundamentally important. And briefly, the overview on that and what we mean by that is nutrient density is how many nutrients per calorie or what is the nutrition per calorie or what I like to call the nutritional return on investment of what you eat. So there's a scale for that. It's the Aggregate Nutrient Density Index or ANDI score made famous by Dr. Joel Furman, uh, who's best-selling author of a dozen books or so. And basically, it ranks different foods based on 37 factors. So what's the return on investment of a given food? And as it turns out, it's leafy green vegetables that are the absolute number one food, the most nutrients per calorie. Why is that? It's because they are low in calories, but high in nutrition. On the opposite end, you would find something like processed oils, which are 4,000 calories per pound uh, of pure fat and have very little nutrition. And so they would be very, very low on that scale because they're loaded with calories, but have very, very, very little nutritional yield. So once you understand those two, those two scales, nutrient density and calorie density, and and of course, calorie density is is how many calories uh, for a given food based on a serving size. So that could be per per ounce or per gram or per cup or whatever serving size you're using, it has to be consistent across the board per 100 grams, whatever the case is, how many calories are in that food? And as I already mentioned, oil is 4,000 calories per pound. You may have no context there, but what does that mean? Well, compare it to leafy greens, which have about 50 to 100, you'll immediately recognize that oil is about 40 to 80 times more calorie dense. And fruits and vegetables uh, vegetables tend to be about 200 calories per pound, that, uh, uh, fruits 300 calories per pound. You get into grains, rice, beans, lentils, foods like that, about 500 calories per pound. You get into animal protein, they tend to be 1,000 calories per pound or more. Junk foods, processed foods, you know, donuts and that kind of stuff, 23, 2,500 calories per pound. You can kind of get an idea there on the calorie density that the more animal protein, the more processed foods, the more oils added to it, any given food, the more calorie dense it is. And oftentimes, which is very unfortunate, aside from nuts and seeds, the more calories a given food, typically the, the lesser amount of nutrition. It doesn't seem to make sense. You'd think, well, if you're eating a lot of calories, it must provide lots of nutrition. But that's not the case, which is why our Western world, our Western society is overfed and undernourished. We're just eating too many calories in the form of fast food, restaurant food, processed food that just doesn't have a lot of nutrition in it. Think soda, candy, pastries, cakes, donuts, processed foods, chips, crackers, whatever. There's just nothing there. Burgers, there's, the return on investment is so low. So once you understand that, wow, you can really make a plant-based meal program that is gonna support your athletic endeavors, that is relatively low in calories, but high in nutrition, so you're not storing extra body fat, you're getting the calories that you need to perform and recover and even build muscle or whatever your goals are, and you're getting it with the highest amount of antioxidants, vitamins, minerals, phytonutrients, fiber, and water, 
And this is exactly why the nutrition explains the results. The science, the evidence-based science explains the results that, that, that people like Venus Williams are getting where her career was literally over because of joint pain. She adopted a plant-based diet, bounced right back, won Wimbledon and an Olympic gold medal the next year. Science can explain that. She changed the way that she ate and therefore she changed the way she performed. And we teach everybody how to do that in the plant-based athlete. That is so inspiring. And what's crazy too is just in my experience, knowing a lot of athletes, but who are not by any means pro athletes. So they don't have a team there trying to optimize their diet and performance. What I've seen is sort of the opposite approach, which can be really harmful over time is you're working out a lot, you're running, you're playing sports, you're burning a lot of calories. So you feel like you can eat whatever you want. Just shove the junk food, the oil, the processed food, whatever, and you'll work it off, which is, a, I think, a dominant mentality when you're young and athletic. And that really can cause some huge issues over time. So it's so, so wonderful that the information is getting out there. And once you realize, wow, I'm eating more calories. So if I actually make those calories count for nutrition, you can be fueling your body with the best of the best fuel. Yeah. And I'm glad you brought that up because I think it's worth mentioning that and kind of lingering on that point for a moment because... I've spent decades in the world of bodybuilding, and one of the things that I have unfortunately seen is many careers cut short, lives cut short. Many bodybuilders that I have photos with that were people I looked up to, even a couple who were, were friends or, or certainly acquaintances or, or casual friends passed away in their 40s. Many of them never made it to age 50 because there's, there's a, a, a very good point that you made there that you can look aesthetically pleasing, if that's the the word you want to use. You can look fit, you can look strong, you can look muscular, and you can be just wrecked on the inside. Your arteries could be getting so damaged and so clogged with plaque from dietary cholesterol and saturated fat that you could be just a walking time bomb, really, even though you have a six-pack abs and these you know big shoulders and pecs and biceps and triceps and quads. But it doesn't matter if blood can't flow through your veins, like if it can't go through your arteries, if they're, I mean, imagine when you step on a hose or, or fold a garden hose in half, if blood cannot get through, just like water can't get through the hose, it's not going to get circulation throughout your body and you are going to have a, a cardiac issue. You're going to have some sort of heart related issue, which unfortunately I've seen time and time again in bodybuilding, in pro wrestling, in NFL football especially male athletes, just for whatever reason, it tends to be male athletes who put on a lot of muscle and they eat a ton of animal protein. They're just obsessed with it, getting as as many grams of animal protein as they possibly can. And it's, it's observational, it's anecdotal, but I've watched it for decades. Their careers and lives are cut short. And in many cases, you know, if they do make it past 40 or 50, they tend to maintain a, a massive amount of, of excess body fat and become obese and, and develop chronic issues. And that's largely because of the eating patterns they had when they were in their teens and 20s, playing in the NFL and being a pro wrestler on television, where they're eating just thousands and thousands and thousands of calories per day. Because like you said, they're able to burn it off and look fit and muscular and take all these supplements but it could absolutely be destroying them on the inside. And that's perhaps one of the most important conversations that is not being had. And I'm I'm so glad you brought it up because you can follow a paleo diet and, and look 
super ripped. You can even be really fit. You can be really strong and and do great in the CrossFit games, uh, which are happening right now in Madison, Wisconsin. You can follow a keto diet and you can be in great shape and you can lose weight and you can achieve your fitness goals and all that. But it doesn't mean that you're not creating chronic inflammation or damage, damaging endothelial cells or developing plaque inside your arteries, uh, creating cardiac issues or developing other internal things that you're just not aware of because you're focused on the external, not the internal. And that is something that over the last 50 or 100 of these interviews that we've done in this journey of becoming a bestseller, my co-author Matt Frazier and I talk about the longevity benefits of a plant-based diet so often. So I've mentioned all these athletes that unfortunately aren't even you know, alive after age 40, yet in the plant-based world, we've got Rip Esselstyn setting a world record at age 58 and John Joseph competing in Ironman triathlons, Ironman distant triathlons at age 59 and Fiona Oaks five decades into a vegan lifestyle since she was five years old and now she's in her in her 50s and still representing her country in like three different distances of endurance running. And, and and Rich Roll at age 55 and and Scott Jurek in his, I think, mid to late 40s right now and one of the greatest runners the world has ever known. And Christine Vartaro still competing as a professional cyclist in her 50s. I mean, this is just not, this just doesn't happen on a regular standard diet all that often. Yet, these are just a handful of examples that I'm able to provide just from our book alone of athletes who are continuing to compete at a high level in their 50s. And it, and again, it comes back to, are you able to reduce inflammation, improve recovery, increase your vitamin, mineral, antioxidant intake, and create a healthier body, not just a fitter body, but a healthier body on the inside too. And that's at the end of the day, if we just want to be direct about it, <laughs> that's the true benefit of a plant-based diet. You know, sports are great. You know, we all love glory and winning and being competitive. But at the end of the day, I think we'd all agree that living living a healthy, long life, you know, free of a, a lot of these illnesses that can be prevented through diet is, is really rewarding and beneficial for whatever reasons you have, whether it's wanting to be a grandparent or wanting to just be largely pain-free as you, you know, get into your 70s, 80s, whatever. We all have our own reasons, but that's the real benefit of this plant-based diet is, is the longevity and the athletic performance benefits are, are, those are more like the, the byproduct of that or the, the side of, you know, the positive side effect, not really the ultimate goal. You mentioned earlier that there are some athletes who eat a lot of meat. And I imagine it's because they believe that it's going to contribute protein into their diet. And I know that as a, as someone who's not really an athlete, I hear about protein. My friends are concerned about Maybe not so much anymore, but at some point, my friends were really concerned about my protein consumption. So as an athlete, I'm sure you get it even more. How do you address that? Yeah, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's an entire episode, you know, for a podcast or conversation just around protein. It's it's a complicated thing because of the marketing that's been around it. It's, it's probably one of the most successful marketing campaigns in the history of the world. And we actually talk about that in the book, about how that came to be post-World Wars, the rise of fast food restaurants, the rise of family diners, the inclusion of microwaves and TV dinners, the role of masculinity and, and men wanting to have this, this hunter mentality and providing 
meat for their family to last for a long time and and really feeling masculine about taking the life of a you know an innocent innocent animal and and providing it for their family and the marketing that went into the protein supplement industry through the 70s and 80s and 90s that now is a over 100 billion dollar industry largely based on whey and casein proteins which are a byproduct of cheese making which were just being thrown out and discarded and now they're being powderized and packaged and sold and you know, e- e- even though they're, according to Dr. T. Colin Campbell, carcinogenic and very likely, especially casein protein, to to lead to cancer or cancer tumor growth, and we know the impact that whey has on insulin-like growth factor one and the ability to grow cancer tumor cells, and and even as Dr. Campbell, who wrote the China study and conducted one of the the largest studies on human nutrition ever done in the history of the world, has has said really bold statements like casein may be the most carcinogenic substance ever known, you know, as far as a food that people consume. And then you factor in the the fact that the World Health Organization classifies red meat and processed meats as either a, a class one or class two A carcinogen that is very, very likely, very probable to lead to cancer, which you may know the numbers better than me. It's something like one in two people are going to get cancer now in today's society in America whether it's breast cancer, prostate cancer, colorectal cancer, some form of cancer that's very, very much diet related. This obsession with protein is is, is literally killing us. Th- that, is, that is just the reality. And so, yes, protein is important. Yes, it helps maintain muscle mass and repair muscle tissue. Yes, it helps with hormone function. Yes, it plays lots of vital roles and it's important, but we just don't need as much as we think we need. For example, there's probably... Uh, and this is for anybody listening, not just you, but anybody listening throughout your entire life, your entire life, you've probably never met a single person who has a true protein deficiency, like a medically diagnosed clinical true protein deficiency, because it largely only happens in starving nations in starving populations or among people with eating disorders or lack of economic ability to afford adequate calories afford food, people who are starving, people who are are poor, like truly poor, people who live in a food desert, people who have eating disorders. That is the population that suffers from true clinical protein deficiency, which is almost zero people we've ever met in our entire lives. Yet, almost every single person you've ever met, anyone you see at the grocery store, anyone you see at a concert, walking on the sidewalk, at work, at school, anyone you've ever met, consumes more protein than they actually need. I mean, just think about that. Not just reaching their bare minimum. Almost every person you have ever met in your life consumes more protein than they actually need. Yet, as a society, we are convinced that we need to consume more of it to the point that we need protein-infused water, protein popcorn, protein candy, protein added to everything because marketing, marketing, marketing works. And we're scared. We think we need this, even if we're non-athletes, we could even be, let's say this is true. I mean, this is absolutely true throughout America. We could be someone who is obese or even, you know, morbidly obese, who's inactive, sits on a couch, watches a lot of Netflix, eats a lot of food, doesn't do any kind of physical activity aside from just getting around yet is still concerned and consumes protein drinks and protein-enriched foods or goes out of their way to eat chicken or fish or beef for the protein content, thinking, I'm going to waste away. And this is someone, again, who's not athletic, who's already has 
lots and lots of excess body weight and is still convinced they need more protein. That's just how powerful this marketing is. And lastly, on protein, and again, it it, it would be really insightful and fascinating to do a, a much deeper conversation about it, but you have to look at protein in its totality and the baggage that comes with it in the form that you choose. So let's say you're standard American diet follower, you're athletic, uh, you are active, and you obsess about protein. You fixate on it because that's what you've been taught and that's what's on your mind. And so you go out of your way to consume lots of animal protein. Well, you have to understand that along with that, there's very likely going to be excess amounts of dietary cholesterol, saturated fat, excess calories in general. It could come as a class one or class two A carcinogen, and it could lead to inflammation. These are all the things that come with it. You can't just say, oh, I reached my 100 grams of protein today. No, I I got my 100 grams of protein, plus I got X amount of dietary cholesterol, X amount of saturated fat, X amount of surplus calories. I limited my intake of vitamins and minerals, which come uh, largely from complex carbohydrates. I dramatically limited my intake of antioxidants because they're found in plants 64 times more than they are in animal protein. And I did not include very much fiber, which 97% of Americans don't get enough of because fiber is only found in plants. Like This is what you have to look at when you talk about protein. You have to look at the total baggage. And then just quickly, you look at plant-based protein. Well, what's the benefit there? Like, Who cares about plant-based protein? Well, with plant-based protein, you're not going to get the dietary cholesterol. You're also going to get, very likely, vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, phytonutrients, fiber, and water, the most important nutritional compounds for health, and very likely anti-inflammatory compounds rather than pro-inflammatory and a calorie intake that is beneficial with a high nutritional return on investment of nutrients per calorie, uh, which plants naturally thrive in. So that's part of the story with protein. And of course, we talk about that in detail in the book and just understand that a lot of times you're not actually buying a protein bar or or what you think you're eating. You're, you're buying a carbohydrate or fat bar wrapped in protein bars clothing because of how it's been marketed to you. And to be aware of some of those nuances and the minutia that's tied into one of the greatest marketing campaigns the world has ever known. Yeah, it is crazy how much marketing dictates our actions, which impacts our entire lives. (laughs) I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more about plant-based proteins. What do those look like? What are they? Where people are like, I don't even know how you can get protein. Obviously, there's protein in like everything that grows under the sun, but people don't know that. So how can you help people understand what they can be eating and what are the best sources? Yeah, that's great. That's great. I I didn't know how much time we had for protein, so I, I didn't even get into some of those and part of the reason I didn't is because I personally don't, I don't think that way when it comes to nutrition. I don't look at a food and say, okay, how much protein am I going to get from that? And because it's just not on my radar whatsoever, I don't emphasize protein. But I do want to, I do want to make a point that, you know, for athletes, active people, uh, you probably want to aim for about 1.2 to 2 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight. Uh, we have some calculations in the book that kind of give some people an idea. We don't want to go crazy. You don't have to do the old, you know, popularized one gram of protein per pound of body weight. I mean, that would be, you know, for a 140 pound person, male or female, you know, 140 grams of protein 
a day. I mean, I, I weigh 220 pounds and I consume less than 100 grams of protein a day. And, and people would be, be scratching their head right now and say, that's not possible. He's lying. He's, he's making that up. He has not documented that for weeks at a time. And I would say the opposite. I've done all of that. I've documented it for, for years and for many weeks at a time. And that's the, the reality of that I eat about 10% of my calories coming from protein, about 20% of my calories from fat, about 70% of my calories from carbohydrates. And, and there's all the reasons for that I've, I've already kind of touched on, the nutritional benefits. So we know that we don't need a ton of protein, but what is high in protein? Well, the obvious answers are, are certain foods like tofu and tempeh. Soybeans tend to be within the legume family, within the bean family, Soybeans have by far the most protein. They're just you know much more than pinto beans or black beans or navy beans or garbanzo beans. I mean, soybeans are just so high in protein, which is what makes them so popular among vegans or among vegetarians or athletes even. Soy is just a, a, a great source of it. And it's not something we have to be scared of or, or worried about, especially if we consume it in an organic state rather than uh, GMO soy, which most GMO soy is, grown and fed to animals, which then people consume. And so all, all the, all the anti-soy meatheads out there are actually consuming a ton of it um, as, because it's, it's part of the process of feeding animals. And, and it's also mixed in, as you know, in some fast food restaurants, you know, you know it helps water down or change the cost of ground beef at, you know, Taco Bell or other places where soy protein is mixed in. It's, you know, tons of people who are anti-soy are eating soy all the time without even knowing it and contributing to the growth of uh, soy and adding more crops and, and clear-cutting rainforests and all that to, to grow monocrops of soy to feed the animals or just to raise animals on that land that used to be rainforest and, and other, other areas that had trees and <laughs> things like that. So, so soybeans, obviously, tofu, tempeh, but other beans and legumes. You know, lentils are, are the most affordable food on the planet as far as you, when you factor in everything from the nutritional yield the calorie density and what they provide, they tend to be the most affordable food worldwide, which also contain tons of nutritional benefits, including being pretty high in protein. So all legumes, nuts and seeds are fantastic. I don't think I fully mentioned, but they are very high in calories. They're 2,800 calories per pound for nuts, seeds, nut butters. And so just be aware of that. They're very, very high in, in calories because they're partly high in in fat, which has nine calories per gram, which is more than double the amount of calories per gram of carbohydrates and, and protein, which are four calories per gram. So nuts uh, nuts and seeds and nut butters and seed butters are great sources. Leafy green vegetables can be a pretty good source. They can be 50% of their calories coming from protein, but as we already stated, they're very low in total calories, so you'd have to eat a high volume. Uh, so in that case, maybe blending them in a smoothie, you'd get a lot more of it from leafy greens like kale, spinach, uh, watercress, collard greens, rather than a salad where you know they just can't eat that that many of them. Uh, so you'd have to saute them, or you'd have to wilt them, or have to uh, blend them, or in some other way to to consume large amounts of them. But really, what I what I really aim to communicate is that you don't have to think of it in that reductionist mindset where. You don't need to look at a food and say, okay, this food is high in carbohydrate. This food is high in protein. This food is high in fat. This food is high in vitamin B7 or this, this food is high in vitamin K2 or this food is a really great source of potassium. Like I'm trying to help move people away from that 
but just have a general understanding that you eat something like a burrito bowl, rice and beans and avocado, lettuce, tomato, salsa, peppers, mushrooms, whatever you have in there, it's a diversity of nutrition. You know, amino acids are what make up the building blocks of protein. And amino acids, as you said, are in every food. I mean, you'll find protein in mango and in watermelon, not very much, but you'll still find it there because they're in the amino acids. And so at the end of the day, eating a diversity of calories is uh, typically a good idea, just for a lot of reasons. When you get varied nutrition, different levels of vitamins, minerals, antioxidants, amino acids, of course, which are the building blocks of protein coming from lots of different sources. They may contain omega-3 essential fatty acids or other nutritional benefits. And also the flavors change and, and create more of a creative and desirable diet that makes you want to stick with it rather than, you know, you know sticking with the same a few fruits and vegetables every day, you know, to diversify things, having quinoa and flax seeds and chia seeds and, and black beans and lentils and oats and rice and yams and sweet potatoes and all of that cauliflower, broccoli, it all matters. Yeah, some foods are higher in protein than, than others, but I'm a much bigger fan of just reaching your calorie needs and letting the, letting the amino acids, uh, you know, sort themselves out. We're now narrowing in on time and I have a lot of questions for you. So let's get started on some of the most common common questions that we hear all the time. Like how easy is it to build muscle as a plant-based athlete? You, of course, are the person to be asking this question. Yeah, so basically it comes down to eating a calorie surplus combined with resistance weight training. I'll try to speed up my answers here as I know we're running a little on time. I mean, that is the answer. So basically, in order to build mass, you have to eat a calorie surplus, which is consuming more than you're expending, and you have to do some sort of resistance training, particularly weight training is a good idea, in order to build muscle rather than fat when you consume excess calories. So what that means quickly, and I hope this is helpful, is for everyone to use a Harris-Benedict calculator. You can just Google that, Harris-Benedict calculator, which you enter in your gender, age, height, weight, and activity level is basically your basal metabolic rate plus your activity level. And it'll give you an approximate number of calories that you expend per day based on all those factors. And then you can use something like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer to document your calorie intake of foods and beverages consumed throughout the day and then compare the two. Okay, I expend 2,500 calories per day and I consume you know, 3,000 calories per day. What does that mean? That means there's like 500 calorie surplus every single day, which is gonna lead to weight gain. And this is what happens to hundreds of millions of people around the world all the time without being aware of it. That is how we gain weight. That is how obesity happens because we consume an excess of calories beyond what we're expending without knowing it. Athletes just tend to be a little bit more aware of it because it's a factor in our sports performance. So as a bodybuilder, to again, just finish answering this question, if you want, or a not just a bodybuilder, but anyone who wants to build muscle, you must be in a calorie surplus in order to add mass, and you need to be consistent with resistance training in order to create those micro tears and muscle fibers to allow them to recover and grow and repair and get bigger and stronger. And, and that's as, as simple as that. Use that Harris-Benedict calculator and uh, use my fitness power chronometer. Be consistent and be patient and allow adaptation and improvement to happen over time. And you absolutely can and will build muscle. And what about supplements like protein powder? I know if I'm a, a casual jogger who goes out for 30 minutes a day at a very leisurely, comfortable pace, do I need to take 
supplements or is eating a whole foods plant-based diet that is filled with lots of nuts and beans and nut butters going to be sufficient? This may surprise you, but absolutely, whether you're a casual, you know, jogger, as you as you mentioned, or even even if you are a hardcore weightlifter, you do not need to consume protein powders. I'm someone who has not consumed them in a decade, no protein powders, protein bars, emphasis on high protein foods for an entire decade. And during that time, I've become the biggest and strongest I've ever been in my entire life, even now that I'm in into my 40s. And I'm just one example. I've talked to Nima Delgado. He's read a lot of my work. We've had some conversations. He said he has started to limit his protein intake. Of course, he uses supplements. He has his own supplement brand, but he knows full well that you don't have to. It's just something that some people like to do for convenience. Really, at the end of the day, things like protein powders and most supplements uh, have to do with, with habit and repetition and routine and uh, convenience more than anything else. So, nope, to answer your question, you do not need protein supplement whatsoever. The only supplements that you would want to use would be a vitamin B12 supplement, which as you you both know, it does not come from animals, does not come from plants. It's a bacteria that's often found in dirty food, you know, red meat in the soil. You know, it's on, in our sterile food system, our sterile food and water system. We just don't consume a lot of dietary B12 in the form of bacteria. So supplements, great idea for everybody, uh, vegan or not. Um, but especially those on a plant-based diet who are not eating red meats and such that might have some B12 in it. And uh, vitamin D is can be very important for a lot of people. Uh, that comes from the sun. Uh, unless you're living in Los Angeles or, or south of Los Angeles or Dallas or Atlanta, south of that latitudinal line, you're just not gonna get enough vitamin D throughout the year. And so supplement would be a, a great idea there. And then omega-3 essential fatty acids, DHA, EPA, some people have a hard time converting that and getting adequate quantities of omega-3 essential fatty acids, that supplement could be a good idea. Naturally, you can find that in walnuts and chia seeds and hemp seeds and some other foods, other plant-based sources, of course. But I mean, that's it for supplements, really. I mean, we, 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 can, we have a whole chapter about it in the book. We can you know, dive deeper into creatine and branched-chain amino acids and all that. But with your question regarding protein powders, absolutely not necessary. It's 100% comes down to marketing, convenience, and personal preference and habit, why people do or do not use those products. Fascinating. I think you may have just saved a lot of people a lot of money, Robert. <laughs> I hope so, because it's something that doesn't get talked about enough, but it's the real reality. Again, uh, the, the marketing plays the, the big factor in there. Again, the, the idea of consuming something that we already get enough of in the form of an isolated form that doesn't have... The, the water and fiber and all the vitamins and minerals intact just, just doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the most common questions that you get asked that you field often? And do you have some easy answers? Because a lot of those listening communicate about these things with their friends or family or may get asked questions and aren't sure how to respond to them. Do you have any tips on that front? Oh, absolutely. Well, the biggest thing that I've come across in 25 years I've been doing this is from omnivorous athletes who adopted a plant-based diet and said, you know what? It didn't work for me. You know, I felt weak. I felt tired. I felt like I, you know, I just didn't get enough protein or, you know, I, I lost weight. Uh, again, largely for male athletes. And that's probably who I communicate the most with just being a, a uh, champion vegan bodybuilder. It tends to be male athletes that come to me with these questions. And there's, a, there's an easy solution here. There's a real reason behind it. So imagine this scenario, and, and this is what's happening. 
So a lot of uh, athletes, again, particularly males, are consuming omnivorous diets and get inspired to become plant-based because of a documentary, uh, animal rights, health, nutrition, a film, a book, whatever, their spouse, partner, and they cut out all meat, all dairy, all eggs, all animal products, which are very calorie dense, very calorie dense. And so they go from this, let's say 3000 calorie diet, they cut out meat, milk, and eggs, they replace it with salad greens and broccoli and, and fruits. And all of a sudden they lose weight, they lose energy. And they say, what's, what is going on? Well, they've cut They've cut down their calories from 3,000 to, let's say, 2,000 a day. That's one-third of their entire daily calorie intake they've cut out. This is what happens with like keto and paleo diets too, by the way, which is how a lot of people lose weight with that. Cutting out an entire calorie, you know, entire group of food, like cutting out carbohydrates or something like that, which is the bulk of most people's diets. And so you cut out these types of foods, you know, calorie-rich foods, yeah, you're going to lose weight. You're going to lose energy. You're going to not feel as full. I mean, nobody gets super full eating salads all day long. And so what you have to do is be aware of that and include those calorie dense foods. So instead of loading up on like spinach and broccoli and all that, load up on oatmeal with walnuts in it and and blueberries and blackberries in it. And, you know, super calorie dense, you know, walnut, I mean, um, oats are just kind of heavy and they're long lasting energy and eat potatoes and yams and sweet potatoes. They're just heavy by weight, heavy by volume. They're filling, eat lentil soups and beans of all types, you know, chickpeas and, and pinto beans and black beans, eat burritos, eat burrito bowls, eat tacos, eat the incredible Thai and, and Vietnamese and, and Indian foods that are, are largely these rice and vegetable curry dishes with big chunks of tofu and potatoes and carrots and these, these heavy foods in there. That's how you do it. So the, the most common thing really that I've seen across the board, you know, come across my table, across my email, across conversations is that people are under eating actually when they're trying to maintain muscle or when they're trying to b- perform as a plant-based athlete, they're just simply under eating calories. They're still getting tons of nutrition, mind you. Don't, don't get me wrong. They're eating way healthier overall than they were before. But that's not their goal, typically. Their goal is not health. Their goal is athletic performance. They want to get bigger, stronger, faster, greater endurance, more speed, agility. And that's going to come from eating those heavier foods. So don't be afraid of the peanut butter sandwiches or the apples with almond butter or the lentil soups or the big stews and the, and the, uh, you know, sushi with tofu and sweet potatoes and tempeh, all of that, the, you know, the Thai fried rice and the pad Thai burritos. That's the kind of stuff that people transitioning from an omnivorous diet to a plant-based diet need to consume in order to keep their calories up. And then once you do, once you're aware of that, then, you know, incorporate whatever foods you like. You can continue on with those foods, the, the pad thais, the fried rice, the potato dishes, you know, whatever, but just be aware of that calorie intake versus expenditure. And, and that's the way to uh, achieve your goals. That's something that I hear a lot, even outside of athletes, is if people start eating plant-based and they're just feeling lethargic or tired or the opposite of what they expect, because everyone says you feel more energy and you feel so great. And and I think the big the big answer is usually you're not eating enough food because when you're filling your plate with plants, it's inevitably going to be far fewer calories usually than filling your plate with animal products. So I think that's a really right. great, really great tip. 
Before we wrap up, I think a big part of being successful in any endeavor is having community around you. And you've done such a great job, Robert, of both creating community for other people and through your experience, I'm sure you have the best tips of how people can find community, whether it's an athletic group that maybe is on board with plant-based living or vegan gyms now exist. Can you talk a little bit about where people can find community? Yeah, we, and we gravitate toward people that are like-minded. We do it in politics. We do it in religion. We do it in athletics. We do it in uh, personal interests, arts and crafts and leisure and travel and you know, cryptocurrency, whatever it is. Uh, gurus, like, you know, that's what we do. We we find community of people who have like-minded interests. And, you know, I was very fortunate. I started veganbodybuilding.com almost 20 years ago. And we had for a long time, this, you know, not anymore, unfortunately, but for a long time, we had arguably the, the biggest and most active plant-based athlete community in the entire world. Like it was just so active and so fun. And we had these interactive forums. Those forums still exist, by the way. They're just not quite as popular now with Facebook and Facebook groups and Instagram and these other platforms that, that just simply did not, did not exist uh, 12, 15 years ago. That was something that I was really, really proud of and still am proud of. And we do still have a great community there and many people that I've met. Uh, along the way, who've become some of my, my best friends I've met through that community. My co-author, Matt Frazier, uh, runs No Meat Athlete, nomeatathlete.com. And they're perhaps the world's largest plant-based athlete community these days. Matt and I have, have both been on this the same track. There's these parallel paths of building these strength and endurance communities over the years. And it's and really, honestly, I can just tell you both right now. I mean, that's 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 how we were able to write one of the best-selling books in the world because we have, we both manage the largest plant-based athlete communities out there. Yes, there's big personal account pages on social media. Some plant-based athletes have millions of followers or hundreds of thousands of followers, but that, that interactive community where it's in a forum or a platform or an online group, you know, we have these big Facebook groups, you know, vegan bodybuilding and fitness Facebook groups and vegan strong Facebook groups and all that. Like those are all worthwhile. And, and that's where we, that's also where I offer like, you know, signed copies of, of my books and uh, all these free bonuses and all this stuff. I, I reward our newsletter communities. Matt and I both have large newsletter followings. That's again, that's, that's part of being part of a community. Just like I subscribe to other newsletters that I'm interested in, like Nutrition Facts, Dr. Gregor, or, or Forks Over Knives, or or uh, Nutrition uh, Studies, uh, Dr. Campbell's organization, or PCRM, or whatever, because I want to be part of those communities. And then, you know, I know the world's in a little bit of a awkward place at the moment. So some things are up in the air, like, for example, vegan festivals that I've attended for 15 years as a speaker or exhibitor or the vegan cruise, which I've been on for 10 consecutive years. That's where I met my wife oh, 10 years ago on the dance floor, on the vegan cruise. And we've been on 10 years since and 2000 vegans are out there floating around the Caribbean for a week together. I mean, talk about building community. I mean, you're stuck on a ship together, doing everything together, meals together, workouts together. Like it's, it's amazing. And so, you know, I just encourage people to seek that out. I know it's difficult right now because vegan festivals and some things are not happening, the health conferences, a lot of the stuff is virtual, but you can still be part of the virtual events. And I've been part of many of those too. And then when things do return, and, and hopefully they will, uh, find those things, those those events, those groups, those festivals, those conferences in your community, or make it a point to travel to one. And you may discover some of the the best friends you've ever met in your life. And that's been true for me. Awesome. Absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for coming on this show. We will include everything that you mentioned in the show notes. We'll put all the information for how to get in contact with you. And we really appreciate your time and sharing your experience. You're obviously so accomplished. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you, Tony. And thank you, Michelle. It's been a real honor to be with you today. And and I really hope a lot of these messages resonate with your audience. And I'm grateful for the opportunity and uh, wishing you both the best. And thank you again for having me on. Awesome. Thanks, Robert. I hope to see you at an event soon. Yeah, absolutely. That, that community building stuff, that's what we do best. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you again to our podcast sponsors, Vital Body Therapeutics and Better Than Bullion. Vital Body Therapeutics is a wonderful company that offers natural, organic hemp CBD products. And they're manufactured not too far from where we live. They are in Santa Cruz, California, and you can check them out at vitalbodytherapeutics.com. And then, of course, we have Better Than Bouillon, who makes our favorite soup stock. And again, that is not just to be used in soups. We use it in pretty much everything, gravies, stir fries, you name it, we use it. And you can check them out at betterthanbouillon.com. I really enjoyed chatting with Robert and I hope that you enjoyed this episode too. Definitely check out his book, The Plant-Based Athlete. And if you'd like to see the show notes, we'll include all of the different things that Robert mentioned and lots of resources for vegan athletes. And as always, you can find the show notes where we link up and talk about everything mentioned in the episode at plantpoweredpodcast.com. Just click on this episode with Robert Cheek and you'll find everything there. If you enjoy the show, we would so appreciate your support with a review on Apple Podcasts. Or if you want to go even the extra mile and support the Plant Powered People podcast with a monthly donation of as little as $3 a month, $2, $3, something like that, you can do that at patreon.com slash plantpoweredpeople. And all of those funds go to keeping our show running, our editor, our sound equipment, all of that. So thank you, thank you, thank you to all of our Patreon supporters and to all those listening. We hope you enjoyed the episode. If you know anyone who might find this helpful, we hope you'll share it. And we hope you're having an awesome day. A big high five to all the plant-based athletes out there. I feel like if you are a plant-based athlete and you want to say, hey, we'd love to hear. We'd love to hear from you. You can find Tony at plant-based on a budget on Instagram. And you can find myself at vegan. And we love connecting with those of you listening. So thank you so much. And we'll talk to you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Bye.